Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we'll venture from the Arctic Circle to the Big Easy, visiting two extreme corners of North America. Guidebook author Aaron Spitzer now lives in Yellowknife in Canada's Northwest Territories. There's not a huge amount of a tourism presence, and there's not that much known about the NWT, so a lot of people still think of it as a drive of discovery. Aaron will clue us in on the appeal, in both winter and summer, of Canada's far north. And later in the hour, Lonely Planet's Jay Cook returns for a festival guide to New Orleans, where they're knee-deep in Mardi Gras right now. My first time in Mardi Gras, I was actually very surprised at the difference between the daytime experience, which is quite wholesome, and the nighttime experience, which I wouldn't call wholesome. (laughs) But first, we'll start with your calls about the heroic kindness of strangers you've met in your travels. We're packing a parka for Canada's Arctic and catching some beads in New Orleans. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll head for our continents far north and deep south. We'll hear about the appeal of the Canadian Arctic from a guidebook author who's made Yellowknife his home. And later in the hour, we'll celebrate Mardi Gras in New Orleans. But we'll begin with your calls at 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email. Tell us about the kindness you've experienced in your travels. I find that uh, the very best memories after a trip are not from the top of great monuments or in wonderful museums, fun as that may be, but it's the people that I met. My very first trip to Europe, my Europe through the gutter trip way back when I was a student, the memories that still are shiny in my mind are the memories of the friends that I made and the kindness that I found in strangers. Our phone number, 877-333-7425, or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Let's talk about tales of heroic kindness. We have Angela on the line from Kirkland, Washington. Hi, Angela. Hi. Have you um, encountered some friendliness in your travels? I did. I have. Um, In fact, this past summer, I was hiking across England on the coast-to-coast trail. And on a particularly hot day, temperatures were in the high 90s. I was supposed to go 23 miles. And about 12 miles into my day, my water had run out. I was very, very hot and blisters on my feet, um, tears in my eyes <laughs> type of situation. And I stumbled through the small town of Danby Whisk, and a, a group of ladies sitting on their front porch saw me, took pity on me, pulled me in under the shade, took off my boots for, for me, stuck my feet in cold water, and proceeded to push cold water down me like there was no tomorrow. And in effect, revived me. <laughs> After having had such a horrible morning, um, struggling with the heat, and they're very kind, very patient. I was incoherent when I first sat down. I was so tired and out of it because of the heat. And they were just—they were very nice. And they, after they gave me water, they brought me out uh, sangria and uh, <laughs> gave me some tea cookies, and uh, even gave me a ride in one of their um, husbands' brand new Porsche the town where I was supposed to be staying that night. So. Wow, what a, what a beautiful story. It was, like, it was like you brought the world to them. They were sitting <laughs> in their cottage, and here you yeah. come from the west coast of the United States, hiking across the fields. And in England, they've got this famous thing where you can walk everywhere, so you can just walk yep. through the fields. Yeah, and that was the hardest part. I'd been walking across hay fields that had just been harvested, and the, the heat off the hay was just oh, yeah. intense, and it just dried me out quicker than what I ever thought it would. And were you comfortable yeah. accepting their kindness? I, I felt a little awkward at first because I felt like I was imposing upon them in their nice little afternoon on their front porch, but they quickly put me at ease, and I was a little embarrassed at first because I was crying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they quickly put me at ease and assured me that there was nothing wrong. There was no, no shame in stopping and asking for help and assistance when I was in that kind of situation. You know, I think you almost did them a favor by let them being heroically kind to you. <laughs> no reason to feel like you're um, putting them out or anything. And I think that's a very good tip. If people want to be friendly to you, it's a joy to receive their hospitality. Absolutely. Yeah, let, let, them, let them be nice to you. And so 
they they were wonderful and refused to accept any kind of you know yeah. payment for their kindness. And I went on my way, and I'm forever grateful to them because I think they probably saved my trip <laughs> by helping me oh, that that's, afternoon. That's beautiful, Angela. And I think a lot of Americans, because they are a little um, uncomfortable accepting this random act of kindness or whatever you call mm-hmm. it, they want to pay or something like that. And that puts a mm-hmm. bad sort of a, a spin on it and a sort of a bad flavor in people's mouths. You don't need to pay. They're not doing it to get anything back. They just are thrilled that there's a traveler in their neighborhood and they mm-hmm. want to uh, make sure that you have a good time. Angela in Kirkland, Washington, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Happy travels. You too, thanks. Tom in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Hi, Tom. Thanks hey. for your call. Hey, Rick. How you doing? Good. Have you met some uh, particularly friendly people in your travels? Oh, we've met lots, lots over, over quite a few years. But um, the one heroic act of kindness that stands out is a few years ago at the, um, I guess you could say, the height of diplomatic tensions between the United States and France. You remember that time? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, decided to take a, a four-week trip to France, my wife and our two kids. And uh, it was our second day in Paris. We, oh, we had just also gone digital. We made the big decision to buy a digital camera. Mm. So pretty big investment. Mm-hmm. We were in Paris a couple of days. We had just eaten at a bar, and uh, we're on our way to, um, to Notre Dame. And we realized, my wife realized she didn't have the camera. It wasn't in her bag. wasn't anywhere. We all kind of had a moment of panic, and we thought, okay, where did we leave it? We went back to the bar. And it was nowhere to be found. We thought maybe it would be under a table. Maybe it would be, you know, someone picked it up. Nothing. So we agonized for a while. And then my daughter realized that we had stopped before eating. We had stopped at another bar. And when we asked for food, they said they didn't have any, you know, it was, they, they weren't serving food at that hour. So, so we had left. We were there maybe a total of, of two minutes. So we ran back there, and it was closed. And, oh, my gosh, okay. My wife and I speak some French, you know, not particularly well, but we make the effort. And we went next door to a, uh, there was a furniture store. We went next door and tried to explain to the woman in, in French what, um, you know, what our situation was. She helped us, or she rather did the work for us. She <laughs> opened up the phone book, found the name of the bar, who she, she knew the proprietor, called her up, and the proprietor said that while, although she wasn't there that day, the woman who cleans up at night usually finds things, and we could probably come back tomorrow and she'd have it for us. And we kind of thought, yeah, right, it's a brand-new digital camera. There's no proof that we left it there. So she said, come back the next morning early when the woman is opening up and, and we can come by. So I did, got up really early before the family did, uh, ran over there. It's on the banks of the Seine, you know, beautiful little bar there. And sure enough, the woman was there who was opening up. She said, oh, yes, here it is, monsieur, thank you. You know, I thanked her profusely. She had found it. We had left it at the table, and she, you know, gave it back to us. And you can't imagine how happy we were <laughs> to have our investment back, you know, to have our camera that already had a lot of shots on it. Oh, boy. And sometimes the value of the shots to somebody who's been traveling is just as much as right. the camera. You can't replace that. Exactly, exactly. Oh, so um, we were so grateful to them. We went out and we, we bought some flowers for everyone, for the woman oh. at, the, at the bar, the woman who I brought the flowers to. She was like, why are you thanking me? This is not <laughs> a big deal, you know. But it, as a token of gratitude, just to her and to the woman in the in the furniture store as well. That's a nice connection. They probably still remember you also. Yeah, we remember them. I don't know their names, but you know, <laughs> they, they, it lives forever. It's one of those memories of international camaraderie. All right. Well, Tom, thanks very much. Okay, thank okay. you, Rick. Happy travels. You too, thanks. You bet. Shailene in Shingle Springs, California. Hi, Shailene. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for your call. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, tell us a story. Okay, well, I've had plenty of been to about 43 countries and had plenty of experiences in all of them, but this one was just a few weeks ago, and I was traveling in Malaysia, I'd been in Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, and Singapore, and I'd met a girl when I was in Cambodia from Penang, Malaysia, and she had invited me to come and see her family on my way down from Thailand, and I had another friend that was going to be there. And somehow in the process of all the communication, I forgot to write down the address of where it was I was supposed to be going. And I was like, oh, well, I have their mobile number and the house number, so that's going to be fine. But my mobile phone, for some reason, just wasn't getting through to them. I don't know why. And so I arrived on Christmas night in Penang, Malaysia, about 8.30 in the evening. No idea exactly where it was I was going because I still hadn't been able to get a hold of them throughout that entire day of travel. And um, 
the minivan driver just drops you off there on Julia Street, kind of, you know, this is the backpacker area. I'm sure you'll be okay. Bye. So I kind of just turned around and I was like, okay, what do I do? Where do I need to find some place so I can see if they've got a phone box or something. And I just happened to turn around and there was a little family-owned business right behind me that I went into. I kind of explained the situation to the guy and he's like, oh, well, here, you can just use my mobile phone and give him a call. And as I'm calling and getting directions, the father that owned the shop walked in and he overheard and he's like, oh, I know exactly where that is. So um, I got off the phone and he's like, "Um, well, we're getting ready to have this big Christmas parade and it's going to go on for another hour or so. But if you'd like to stay and just kind of hang out with our family and enjoy the parade, uh, my family will be heading home and we'll be happy to give you a ride out there. And it was, you know, about a 20 minute drive. It wasn't just next door or anything. Um, And here it's Christmas night and I'm sure they wanted to be able to spend the time with their family, but they took pity on Traveler and, um, took the time out of their evening and drove me all the way out to where I was going to be staying Mm. and would not accept any payment whatsoever and just said, it's Christmas, we hope you have a beautiful stay here, come back and see us the next time you're here. And it just was a really, a really cool thing, I thought. You know, that's great. And when I think about Asia, I have to remind myself that in a lot of religions, the traveler is, is somebody who's holy, who's always going to be received warmly, and it's part of their joy of their religion that they'll treat travelers with warmth and make them feel comfortable and safe and, and so on. And they really do. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, everywhere I was that I visited on this 10-week trip, just everybody was like that. Hmm. And that was just one of many stories. So. And another interesting thing about Asia, Shailene, is that the word serendipity comes from an Asian language, Sri Lankan. But all over Asia, you've got this wonderful serendipity, and you've got to open yourself up for that. When you, You've got to come in on Christmas Eve without a reservation. You've got to trust the guy in the shop and join him, uh, be flexible, and, and go to the parade. One thing is you meet a lot of people, and you people are always uh, passing around addresses, and it makes a lot of sense if you're on the road for a while to get some cards printed up with your name and your email address and how you want to be communicating with your friends that you make, and also to collect those addresses. And a good safe place to put your address list is to store it with some other important information on your email account, so you can go find uh-huh. a, an email that's, that's exactly saved there. That's exactly what I do. That's what I've been doing for the last 10 years, and I actually still keep in contact with um, a very good majority of the travelers and the locals that I've met along the way and ended up meeting up with them again throughout different travels or when they come to the States. I met people in Bosnia and they came out to the States and just from a lot of different places. Shailene, that's the essence of good travel. Thanks so much for your call. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye now. Up next, we're getting an introduction to a place where the kindness of strangers can truly be a matter of life or death. Canada's Northwest Territories is a genuine frontier, and Aaron Spitzer has made it his home. He'll explain the appeal of the Canadian Far North. And later in the hour, Jay Cook returns to offer a guide to the Mardi Gras festivities going on right now in New Orleans. The Big Easy is still one of the world's great party destinations, and it's eager for visitors now more than ever. We're getting in some serious mileage from north to south today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's how to reach us on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Forget the fun in the sun and the fancy beaches. We're going to go to the bad latitudes. We're heading north into the Canadian Arctic, and I've got with us a man who lives in Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories, and he writes guidebooks on all sorts of Arctic destinations for Lonely Planet. Aaron Spitzer, thanks for joining us. No problem, Rick. Good to be with you. Aaron, you live in Yellowknife. Why would somebody choose to live in Yellowknife? Uh, it, it's the end of the road, quite literally, Rick. It's uh, the frontier is still alive and kicking. If you if you point your car as far north as you can go and end up at the end of the road, and Yellowknife is very much that. It's sort of a, a metropolis in the middle of the wilderness and offers a, a combination of access to nature and access to uh, urban offerings that is a, a, a rarer and rarer thing in North America. It's like a frontier spirit. Exactly. Now, when you research and write for travelers in the Northwest Territories, is that for people who are traveling in Canada? Tell me just a bit about your book. A lot of the people who end up visiting the Northwest Territories are, uh, are sort of spillovers from the RVers and the road trippers who might be traveling up the Alaska Highway en route to Alaska. And oftentimes these are people who can take an entire summer for doing their travels and uh will end up taking a detour once they get up the Alaska Highway, and instead of heading due west to Alaska and the Yukon Territory, they'll become curious about what it is that's, that's sort of due north of uh, Alberta and the, and the beginning of the Alaska Highway, and they'll end up in the Northwest Territories. There's not a huge amount of a tourism presence, and there's not that much known about the NWT, so a lot of people kind of uh, still think of it as a drive of discovery. So you take a wrong turn at Whitehorse and you end up in the Northwest Territories, the size of California and Texas put together with only 40,000 people. How many of those people live in Yellowknife? About half of them live in Yellowknife. So uh, it's, uh, the, the, the population density is even lower in most of it than, than you could imagine. And there are, believe me, there are vast stretches, even when you're on the road, where you, you might be the only car for an hour or so, and you certainly wouldn't see any community or any other people, perhaps, for several hours' worth of driving. So you, you, can, you can get into the wilderness without even getting off the, the beaten path, as it were. Aaron, to the casual observer, is there anything really different between the Yukon and the Northwest Territories? There is. The, the Yukon is uh, a mountainous, essentially the, the northern extension of the Rocky Mountains of North America. So uh, the Yukon is a very mountainous place and has the advantage of uh, sort of the alpine scenery. And it also has the, the famous gold rush history. We've all heard of the Klondike Gold Rush and the Trail of 98. And essentially it was the last, the last great mineral rush, I suppose, in North American history. And uh, the Klondike still, to some degree, lives off of that historical reputation. Uh, for that reason, the Yukon has gotten a lot more developed, essentially, tourist-wise, that can be an advantage for tourists, but a lot of people also see that as a bit of a downside. The Northwest Territories, or the NWT as we call it, it is uh, off that path, as it were. It's not oriented toward tourists, and so for a certain a certain kind of traveler who wants to sort of discover as they go and doesn't want sort of the amenities of tourism staring them in the face, uh, the Northwest Territories is, is kind of, it's sort of the genuine frontier, not gussied up at all for uh, the summer visitor. And once again, you got this vast expanse of land. Half of the 40,000 people live in Yellowknife, so you're the big cosmopolitan center. Is there any culture shock when these people come in uh, once in a while from the vast reaches into the big city, into Yellowknife? Well, a lot of people in the territory visit Yellowknife on a fairly regular basis simply because it is the service hub for the territory. A lot of these smaller communities, they they usually will have a small grocery store and various other, the, the, the rudiments, I suppose, of, of services. But Yellowknife is the governmental hub. It's the shopping hub. It's the transportation hub. And so the people who live in the small communities often will find their way through the metropolis the same way that somebody who lives in the suburbs or in a small town might might drive to the next big town over in order to stock up for groceries 
for the week. Whereas here, they'll come to Yellowknife and stock up on groceries for the month or for the, the next six months and go back to the, the small community that they live in. Now, Yellowknife is actually the name of a tribe. Is that right? It was originally. Yeah, the Yellowknives uh, were when uh, the original white explorers came through this area in the 1700s. There was a uh, a Dene, or as they call them, or an Indian band that had a penchant for uh, copper-bladed knives. And so the, mm. the white folks, the European discoverers, called them the Yellow Knives. That group lives on today in the Yellowknife area. Now, what's the, what's the current situation with, with the ethnic mix and the relations between indigenous people and people who have moved in there for modern reasons? It's fairly integrated in the Northwest Territories. Demographically, it's almost split right down the middle between Southerners, as it were, and the Dene and the Inuit or Eskimo populations. And so uh, the government, for instance, there's equal representation on each side. The The premier or the leader of the Northwest Territories is an Aboriginal man. And an awfully lot of the the jobs and a lot of the reason that people would be here in the Northwest Territories in the first place if they came up from the South would be to work in the government or the service industry serving the Aboriginal population. So unlike some frontier places where there was a great deal of tension and competition for the land and the resources between between whites and Aboriginals, in the Northwest Territories, there's sort of a, more of a collaborative relationship between the two groups, which is, um, it's not to say there isn't any conflict, but it's uh, it's a refreshing change from the way a lot of frontier history has played out over the last 500 years in North America. Yeah. Well, do the Aboriginals see the Canadian government as something that provides them uh, support through uh, cold winters and so on? The Canadian government certainly is seen as, uh, as something that provides support, but more and more... Um, there are what they call in Canada the land claims process. A lot of the Aboriginal governments are becoming, or, or Aboriginal communities and groups are becoming self-governing. So they're uh, essentially, as happened in Alaska, for instance, with the Alaska land claims, they're getting legal jurisdiction over a certain expanse of territory that they can therefore, you know, turn to monetary gain themselves, whether it's through, you know, tourism or petroleum development or, or various things like that. So more and more Aboriginal groups are taking political and economic control into their own hands. Actual self-government. They're, they're running their own states within a state. Exactly, yeah. All right. Is the word Eskimo okay, or, or are we not to say that anymore? In Canada, the word Eskimo is seen, it's not offensive so much as it's seen as just being mildly antiquated. Uh, however, it is certainly the term that's still used uh, even by the, the Inuit or Eskimo populations within Alaska. And up here, even some of the older Inuit will still use the term. So it's not it's not so much offensive as simply uh, not in vogue anymore. So for somebody from the lower 48 here in the United States to use the term Eskimo is not offensive to aboriginals in the Arctic? Exactly. It wouldn't, it, it wouldn't cause um, hurt, it, but it might cause a bit of mild embarrassment if <laughs> they just, were to come up here you're and showing sort it. of your uh, naivete or something. Exactly. Tell me about this circumpolar language and sort of Arctic people solidarity, because I understand it's people don't think of themselves just as Canadians or Alaskans. There's sort of a, a feeling that we're people of the Arctic. Well, exactly. Uh, particularly amongst the, the, the Inuit or the, the Eskimoid-speaking people of uh, the northern reaches of the world, they, they stretch across at least four different nations and stretch all the way from the eastern parts of Asia and Siberia clear across to Greenland. They share a language that is in some ways mutually intelligible. So people from Greenland, for instance, can still talk to many of the people in the Canadian Arctic and, and so on. That forms a, a bond, but they have a lot of sort of political and cultural issues that are uh, in common as well, particularly in this era of a lot of talk and research into climate change, for instance, and potential species destruction in the north. Uh, Aboriginal people in the north in various northern regions are finding it in their benefit to band together and take their case to southern governments or to bodies like the United Nations. And so uh, because of the internet and because of international travel, there's been these very localized people have suddenly become not just nationalized, but internationalized extremely quickly up here. So in the future, we can see more solidarity and more working together among people across national boundaries who live in the Arctic. There's even a, what, a World Eskimo and Indian Olympics in Fairbanks every July. Exactly. There's a World Eskimo and Indian Olympics in Fairbanks, Alaska, which brings Inuit people from throughout the circumpolar world. There's something called the Arctic Winter Games, which is somewhat similar to that, which uh, 
It's held every four years, but it's been held everywhere from Greenland clear across to Alaska. And that too brings northern people together for a sport and cultural celebration. And in addition to that, there are all kinds of cultural and political gatherings that unite people, we could say, laterally, east and west across the north, rather than having to look south to the southern big cities and and southern governments. Well, they have the environmental and the linguistic and the cultural sort of connections. That makes a lot of sense. I'm talking with Aaron Spitzer, who's written the Northwest Territories chapter of the Lonely Planet Guide to Canada, and we've got a call from Mike in Andover, Massachusetts. Hi, Mike. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if, if you have any of the hunting and fishing lodges in that area like I've heard of some of the other areas in Canada. And if so, is there something there for the non-hunting and fishing person as well? Mike, there's both a wide range of some of the best hunting and fishing lodges up in the Northwest Territories and in northern Canada. And there are also a smaller number, though certainly not an insignificant number, of uh, wildlife watching and sightseeing lodges. One of the most famous and probably the longest established is one called the Bathurst Inlet Lodge, which is up, uh, it's on the coast of the central Arctic. It's actually, it's due north of where I am, but it's actually in what's called Nunavut territory, which is the Inuit-governed territory that was recently created. It's a long-standing wilderness lodge. It's actually half-owned by the Inuit community of Bathurst Inlet, and uh, it's a real sort of retreat for naturalists and photographers and people who want to get an intimate look into a very tiny, it's only a population of about a dozen or so people now, Inuit community, and also want to get up close with uh, the tundra and the wildlife and have an authentic Arctic experience. It, It wouldn't be cheap, of course, but having a genuine polar experience like that wouldn't be so. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. I'm speaking with Aaron Spitzer. He writes the Northwest Territories chapter of the Lonely Planet Guide to Canada. Aaron, if you're living up in Yellowknife, do people get like depressed in the winter? You've got midnight sun in the summer, but you got midday moon in the winter, right? On December 21st, the shortest day of the year, there's probably only about five hours of very pale daylight here in Yellowknife, and it doesn't really uh, begin to be light in a southern sense again until sometime in, oh, mid-February or late February or so. Um I, I've never personally been affected that dramatically by it. I certainly like the endless sun of the summer better, but uh, one, I think, comes up with ways to stay active. Now, I've only lived in the North. I've lived in the North most of my adult life, but that's only been for the past uh, decade or so. I've heard uh, some people say that there's a cumulative impact, that the longer you spend in the North, if you're from the South, then the darkness eventually does begin to wear you down. But so far, so good. You know, I was just in Helsinki. They got a similar situation there in Finland, and they actually have some cafes that have special sunshine lighting that people can go to, have a cup of coffee, and enjoy sort of created electronic sunshine to lift their spirits, and they find that it actually is helpful. Yeah, it hasn't. we haven't gotten so high-tech or, <laughs> or so shishi, I suppose, in Yellowknife yet, but... Uh, People find ways to stay active, whether it's, uh, you know, getting out, uh, snowmobiling on the lake or, you know, just going to the pool and sitting in the, you know, in the, in the whirlpool uh, and, and trying to convince yourself that you're on a, a Mexican beach rather than in the Arctic. There must be some clever ways to have fun in the ice. Give me one example of how you just let it down and go crazy. Uh, fun, fun out on the ice? Fun out on the ice. Fun in the winter. Fun in the, fun in the cold. Well, the with uh, a skiing season up here of at least six months long, there's uh, and this is mostly cross-country skiing, it's fairly flat around here, but just about everybody has a couple pairs of skis for various conditions, and, and a lot of people are more comfortable on skis, it seems like, than, than even walking. Um, snowshoeing, of course, was a way that people traditionally traveled out in the woods, and in a lot of ways, when the snow and the cold comes to a place like this, where there aren't many roads and where... The landscape has a lot of rivers and lakes. A good hard freeze actually opens up the countryside. It's it's easier in some ways to go for a hike and to get off the beaten track. And indeed, in the wintertime in some places, uh, ice roads are even built that allow places that are not accessible during the summertime to be driven to over ice and packed snow in the winter. So in a lot of ways, winter is seen as the real season in the north, and summer is just a, a kind of an intermission where... Uh, It's harder to get around and when all the mosquitoes come out. I think I can get a sense of why you choose to live in the Northwest Territories of Canada. We've been talking with Aaron Spitzer, the author of the Northwest Territories chapter of the Lonely Planet Guide to Canada. He specializes in a land where a good hard freeze is actually a blessing. 
Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Stay warm. Bye-bye. <laughs> One of the fun ways for you to participate on Travel with Rick Steves is by being creative. Write us a haiku poem about your travels. Tell us in a few well-chosen words about the sights, smells, and people you've encountered, and we'll read a few of our favorites on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Here's some recent haiku we especially liked. Bill Nolan of Seattle wrote this poem at a roadside rest in Kansas while on a motorcycle road trip to Indianapolis. It refers to a good luck ritual he had, kissing his orange tabby cat on the head as the last thing he'd do before departing on a trip. On my black jacket, 1,800 miles from home, one orange cat hair. Steve and Luann Flowers wrote this haiku after their family took a float trip down the Illinois River in Oklahoma. The river flows on, Kids laughing, sun shining, till, oops, the canoe flips. And Kathy Kreider from Miami writes us this rather personal haiku. Ten days on a ship with my partner of two years. We made it to three. Send us your original haiku or a short brag about your hometown. Details are in the radio section at ricksteves.com, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. For many people, New Orleans has long had a special place in the soul of America. Maybe that's why it's so painful to watch the city torn apart by Hurricanes Katrina and Wilma. Today, despite neighborhoods that still wait for rebuilding efforts to get serious, the tourist districts of the city are in fine shape, hungry for business, and this weekend, they're celebrating Mardi Gras. turns out that tourism is going to be one of the vital sources of income to help New Orleans citizens rebuild their lives and community. Jay Cook from Lonely Planet joins us in a minute to give us a detailed guide to Mardi Gras and the vibrant festival scene right there. We're celebrating Mardi Gras next on Travel with Rick Steves. Come on, take me to the Mardi Gras Where the people sing and play Where the dancing is elite And there's music in the street for night I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's Mardi Gras season, and we're joined by Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. Jay, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. I suppose if you're going to really experience New Orleans, Mardi Gras would be the time to put on your calendar. Yeah, it's definitely one of the top two times of the year to visit. Uh, the other one would be the, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is in April or May. But my first time in New Orleans was for Mardi Gras. And safe to say, uh, I'll never forget it. <laughs> now, Mardi Gras is Fat Tuesday, literally. And that's the day before Ash Wednesday, which kicks off Lent. Do I have that right? That is correct. Fat Tuesday. It's funny because you know that you've reached Ash Wednesday and that Mardi Gras is over when at midnight on Mardi Gras itself, as the last parade comes down Bourbon Street, it's followed by the street sweepers and the police telling everybody, OK, Party's go over. home. <laughs> Party's go over. home. Yeah. I find it very interesting to look at this in a historical and church history kind of way and then uh, in many different cultures. I guess wherever 
Roman Catholicism was dominant, we've got this carnival in Europe, carnival down in Rio. And in Europe, historically, Lent was a very austere time. In order for people to get through Lent, I guess they just had to let it all hang out in this wild and crazy time just before Lent. And that's where we get our carnival. Uh, I guess literally the word carnival means farewell to flesh. What's your take on how New Orleans has this sort of uh, focus these days? Well, it's good to remember the European influences on New Orleans. Now, this was a French territory, and it wasn't until the Louisiana Purchase of Thomas Jefferson in uh, 1803 that it became part of America. And before this city was part of America, it had already established its tradition of Carnival, which is exactly what you said. I think in a lot of ways, too, with the timing in the South, it's also a welcome to spring. Uh, it doesn't get super cold down there, but it is winter. Traditionally, there have been costume balls, and it was sort of a society thing. After New Orleans became part of America and in the 19th century ran on, it just sort of grew into a tradition. So the society thing, would there be a parallel aristocratic kind of celebration going on, or is everybody out in the streets getting rowdy? Yeah, it's a, a good question. You know, in the early days, I think that some of Mardi Gras was a little bit more of the higher classes, if you will. But at the same time, the regular folks, they also were having their celebrations as well. And today's Mardi Gras, what you really see is over 200 years, all classes of society have their traditions that have blended together into the current Mardi Gras. I'm thinking specifically right now about the Mardi Gras Indians who uh, evolved from the, a lot of the African-American folks that lived down there. They would dress up like Indians and have their own parades around town. Now they're a part of the main Mardi Gras itself, along with all the other crews in the city. Now, the Mardi Gras season is certainly more than Fat Tuesday. It goes for nearly a month, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. You know, some people tell me that Mardi Gras starts on New Year's Eve. Uh, I've also heard that whenever there's a Super Bowl that happens in New Orleans, and it's clearly the best city in America for a Super Bowl, then, then Mardi Gras season kind of starts then. But traditionally, it's about 10 or 12 days before Fat Tuesday, and it's marked by parades all over the city and people welcoming their friends to stay. Now, if you're going to be in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, you want to be there specifically on Fat Tuesday, I would imagine. How do you plan your day? Eat a good breakfast, for starters. I think the key for Mardi Gras is to pace yourself, frankly. I, my first time going there, I was 21 years old, and I don't think I paced myself very well. I, and I know that by Saturday of the weekend before Mardi Gras, I was, I was, I was kind of done. But I think that if you arrive at your parade route early and get a good spot— Bring a little chair and wait for the party to come to you. Because if, if you prepare your spot and you let the floats come your way, you will be so far ahead of all the other people that arrive late and try to catch up. Because really what Mardi Gras is all about is the throws. The throws are the varying objects that the crews driving floats toss into the crowds. And it's very interesting how different objects have higher merit or social value than others. Get a coconut. Now, a crew is a social club, and their sort of reason to be together is to make a float. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say that their reasons to be together is, is just to be a social club in general. It's really amazing. The process of making the floats is fantastic. One of my favorite places in New Orleans, and it's a little under the radar because it's across the Mississippi River in Algiers, which is the neighborhood of New Orleans, but disconnected. But this is called Blaine Kern's Mardi Gras World, and it's a big warehouse where people build their floats. And it survived Katrina totally fine. In fact, Blaine Kern was one of the first people that started saying uh, in, the, in the week afterwards, okay, we need to come back and we must have a Mardi Gras. But if you go to his, uh, his, his warehouse there, you can see people actually building these floats. It's very wide open and it's really amazing because the floats are incredibly designed. So you can actually tour this place any time of year? Yeah, no problem. In fact, I had friends that visited there, I'd say, four months ago, and they were able to walk in, and all they saw was one person working on a float saying, do you mind if we walk around? And they said, yeah, go ahead. In fact, even let them climb up into the floats and take pictures of each other. It's very laid back. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're getting ready for Mardi Gras. We're talking about New Orleans with the man who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. His name is Jay Cook. Jay, you talked about the throw, and we all hear about the beads and so on, and the girls that are showing their breasts. How does all that come together? Well, the throws are the various objects that people get when they're 
on the parade routes during the day. Basically what happens is you have parades by day and debauchery by night. The debauchery happens down at Bourbon Street, and it's kind of confined to there. And in terms of the women showing their breasts, that's definitely a part of the tradition. I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's not a requirement to, to do this, to enjoy Mardi Gras. In fact, a lot of people go down to New Orleans and steer totally clear of Bourbon Street, which is fun, but really is a, a tourist spot. So that's kind of the crass, over-the-top climax of all this Mardi Gras activity is on Bourbon Street after dark. Is that where you get this debauchery that people hear about? Yeah, it's kind of Times Square at New Year's Eve or right. something like that. It, it Crass is a good word for it. It's it's a fun thing to go check out a little bit, but it is absolutely not, not a requirement to have a really great time there. In fact, what a lot of my friends that live in New Orleans do is they treat Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest to a lesser extent, but mostly Mardi Gras. That's when they open their homes to people and say, hey, okay, let's go out and do the parades. And then at night, they cook, and they huh. cook for their friends, and then everybody has parties in their homes. Jazz Fest is a little different because in addition to having multiple stages of live music all day, in the evening people go out to the different nightclubs to see more music. Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, is more of a, of a homecoming, if you will. So the, the real essence of Mardi Gras can be misunderstood when people just look at the uh, news broadcasts of it around the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's no different. All those cameras are going to be set up at the intersection of uh, Bourbon and Toulouse, and the whole city isn't going to be like that. It's an amazing financial boost for the city, and I know that in the first Mardi Gras afterwards, they had 700,000 people came. Safe to say they're, they're not all congregating down on Bourbon Street. That was the first Mardi Gras after Katrina? Yes. 700,000? They had 700,000, which is uh, actually under. Usually they, they crest a million, but they were happy with 700,000. I mean, you have to remember this was still literally five or six months after the, the hurricane and, and city services were still scattered and a lot of the hotels were offline. So they were very happy with those numbers. You also had 350,000 come for Jazz Fest. So. Mm -hmm. On that first Mardi Gras after Katrina, I heard there was even some dark humor. People are actually starting to be a laugh a little bit about the situation. The FEMA float, I heard, arrived a day late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kudos to the people that came up with that one. There was uh, some interesting stuff that happened with that. I, I think that uh, that speaks a lot to what New Orleans is all about. It's about being able to turn adversity into humor because what's the fun in life if we just are always dour and down? I mean, there's oh. turbulence and trouble everywhere, but if we can't find a, a, a way past that with laughter and conviviality... You know, why go on? I think that would be essential for the resurrection of New Orleans. I would imagine the police are standing by and an expert at keeping an eye on the craziness but not throwing a wet blanket on everything. How do the police manage the situation? You know, it's funny. One of the difficulties for the New Orleans Police Department is staffing. They just don't have as many people. They, they lost a number of people that left and never came back, so they're short-staffed. Because of that, what they've had to do for the Mardi Gras that happened in 2006 and the one that's happening in 2007, they've restricted the parade routes. Traditionally, they would wind more through the neighborhoods. Now, most of the parade routes are going down St. Charles, which is in the Garden District. Some of the crews were upset about that. They, Especially the first Mardi Gras, they wanted to go past the devastated areas. But for a security reason, because they couldn't really patrol all the perimeters, they had to keep it confined. And personally, I, I don't think that's a bad idea at this point. Mm -hmm. That would make sense, I think, with a limited police force. Uh, Mardi Gras has been described as principally a, a celebration for the youth. Is, is that true? Is there a Mardi Gras for the children? The, the pure joy of the parade is it totally speaks to the children that are there. You're talking about beads and little plastic cups and little noisemakers and coconuts and colors and masks and people on stilts. I mean, kids are going to eat that stuff up. My first time in Mardi Gras, I was actually very uh, surprised at the difference between the daytime experience, which is quite wholesome, and the nighttime experience, which mm, I wouldn't call wholesome. <laughs> okay, so there's a tip for parents. If, you, if you're bringing your kids to New Orleans, uh, enjoy the parade during the day. Exactly. You know, and it's funny, too, because one of the things about New Orleans as well, in general, it's a great uh, place to bring the children. They've got fantastic aquarium there and they've got a wonderful park and they've got the Audubon Zoo as well. So, you know, before Katrina, people were really starting to focus on New Orleans as a destination for children. And I think going forward, you're going to find more and more of that as a possibility, too. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. If you can take us to New Orleans right now, give us a, a, a hint of the magic that stole your heart about New Orleans. 
If I were to go to New Orleans right now, I think the first thing I'd want to do would be to go to Café du Monde and get a café au lait and a beignet. What I like about New Orleans is that the quote-unquote tourist traps are worth the trip. I'd eat that for breakfast, then I'd stroll a little bit along the Mississippi and try to see some of the river boats. Then I'd go over to the Louisiana Music Factory, which is my favorite record and music store in the world. And I'd probably spend $100 or so on CDs after listening to them in the booths. And then uh, after that, I'd probably just follow the next sidewalk through the French Quarter and really just let the city wash over me because that's the kind of city it is. Jay, it sounds like New Orleans is rising again. It sounds like Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras is certainly alive and well. And it sounds like you can enjoy the spirit of Mardi Gras any time of year. Well, for me, the spirit of New Orleans lives on in its music. It always has. It always will. Uh, and well, the last time I was there, I, one of the happiest moments for me was to realize that Vaughn's in the Bywater was still around. Now, Vaughn's is an old, old, old jazz joint, and it's far removed from the standard tourist areas. And yet every Thursday, the trumpeter Kermit Ruffins, he plays his set out there at Vaughn's. And it's a, it's a great scene. And then the set breaks, and everybody goes out to Kermit's pickup truck where he's got his barbecue going, and he just sits there and dishes out barbecue for everybody out there in the middle of the street between sets. You, you sit there, and you, you eat the food that the musician has cooked and given to you, and then you go back in to hear another set of great music. That's New Orleans in a nutshell to me. Wow, New Orleans lives. That's good news. And as tourists, we can contribute to the rebuilding of that city and enjoy its resilient culture at the same time. By putting it on your list, for a vacation sometime soon. I was born way down in Louisiana. I love the weird sound cause that's my home. Way down in Louisiana. Nicole LeBlanc, who sells hats at a shop called the Fleur de Paris in the middle of the uh, French Quarter, emailed us. She's excited about getting people back to New Orleans, and we've got her on the phone. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Hi there. You've been selling hats, what, for over 20 years now in the French Quarter? Yes, I've been here almost 24 years, and the store has been here since May of 1980. Now, New Orleans really is heavily dependent on tourism. What's it like for you now in these little shops in the French Quarter after Katrina? A lot of people are having a really hard time. Um, I would say most people are at about half of their 2004 business. We, we mostly compare it to 2004 because 2005 was you know, a little bit of an aberration, shall we say. Right. But uh, everybody is kind of in the same boat. We all have so many out-of-town clients, and they're just not visiting like they used to. So you're trying to hang in there until things come back, and hitting the 50% mark of pre-Katrina is actually a, a reasonable target for you then? I felt that if we made about 50% for 2006, that we were sort of on track. I'm hoping that in 2007, maybe we can, you know, hit two-thirds or three-quarters. And your business must really take a critical spike during uh, Mardi Gras. It actually starts to take a spike right around Mardi Gras, but mostly right after Mardi Gras because we get into Lent, which is when people start thinking about their Easter hats. Oh, that's right. And we have a number of special events, very famous events here in New Orleans during the spring, French Quarter Fest, which is in the middle of April, and Jazz Fest, of course, which is the end of April, beginning of May. So we stay busy right through the middle of February through May. So you have hats for the various high points in the holiday calendar then? Yes, we do a booming Kentucky Derby business, needless to say. So that between Eastern Kentucky Derby, we'll be just about ready to drop by the beginning of May. Are Southern Bells still wearing hats like they do in the old movies? Oh, absolutely. I've got one coming in for her Mardi Gras hat. Really? Every year a different Mardi Gras hat? Yes, and we do a lot of hats for the young ladies who were the maids and the queens on Mardi Gras. They dress up in suits to toast the king uh, at the parade. I'm talking with Nicole LeBlanc, the head salesperson at a little hat shop called Fleur de Paris in the middle of the French Quarter. Nicole, did you attend Mardi Gras in 2006? I did, and it was absolutely wonderful. Why would it be wonderful as the first Mardi Gras after Katrina? Well, first of all, it was such an emotional release for everybody. We really needed to celebrate and be just like we are normally at Mardi Gras. The parades were extra satirical, and they just were not as crowded. So you've got a really great view of all the floats. You caught more throws. So it was really delightful, and I think probably a little more crowded this year, but compared to before the hurricane, it'll be pretty thin. So you get a little elbow room there in the streets during the parades. Yeah, and that's always nice. And there's not a heavy sort of sad pall over the whole festivities? 
Not really. Even though the businesses are struggling? No, everybody's looking forward to it. We all know that's the start of our busy season. When people are coming to uh, New Orleans, what does a business person like you think about tourists that come in to take the devastation tours, you know, the little bus tours that take you through the devastated zones? You know, when I first heard about those not long after the hurricane, I had mixed feelings. I was kind of offended. And then I started to think about it. You cannot understand the level of the devastation unless you see it in person. And I felt like people need to know how bad it is in those parts of the city. Those are not parts of the city that tourists would normally go to. They're just the neighborhoods, your little neighborhood businesses. It's not the Garden District. It's not the French Quarter. And it's amazing that there's been not very much progress. It still looks pretty bad a lot of places, but I don't want people to forget that even though they're here having a great time, seeing all the beautiful architecture, eating all the great food and listening to the great music, I don't want people to forget that there are still a lot of people here who need help. So you could conceivably wing into New Orleans, have a great time, be oblivious to any of the devastation and sadness that's just a little bit out of the center of town and go home and actually learn very little, or you could come in, have a great time, spend some money, support the shops, and take a half-day bus tour into the devastated area and learn something at the same time. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, and I think that that's good for people. I think I would agree with that. Are there quality little bus tour companies that do a good job of this? There are a number of them, and actually, in most cases that I've read and heard about, quite a few of the drivers lost their homes themselves. So in addition to getting a driver talking you through the tour, you're getting the personal perspective of someone whose own home was devastated with a lot of these drivers. So, and anybody coming into New Orleans, will they be able to find locally through their hotels uh, when and where these tours go? Check with the concierge at your hotel. They should have all the information. Hey, Nicole, do men buy hats in your shop? We only have ladies' hats. I'm a milliner, so I really only do ladies' hats. There is a wonderful men's hat store in New Orleans called Meyer the Hatter that's been here about 100 years. Your place is Fleur de Paris. Fleur de Paris. Nicole LeBlanc, thank you very much, and best wishes, and we're all pulling for New Orleans. Come on down. We will. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We had additional help today from Daryl Eros at CBC North in Yellowknife and from Milt Wallace at the studios of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Join us next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.